0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh focuses on the book of Malachi as he concludes his series on the Old Testament. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to the book of Malachi as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Half Hearted Worship. Malachi last message in this overview of the storyline and theology of the Old Testament that we have been working through here. So let's look to God's word, Malachi chapter one, and then I will ask for God's help as we pray. So Malachi one, verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will re- we return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations." And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, God, just so want to simply ask, Lord, for your grace. Father, we, like millions of other Christians on this day, are looking to your word to hear from you. And so, God, we beg, show us. Show us your truth. Father, please do not let us leave here unchanged or this to be a useless time, oh God. But, Father, if you do not bless, then, Lord, there is no good that will come. If you don't give me help to preach and teach, then I will not be able to do it effectively. If you don't give us grace to hear with hearts that are ready to be changed, then God, there'll be no good that happens. So I ask God right now, please send your spirit to meet with us and do those hundreds of things, many of which we don't even understand, that need to happen for this to be a beneficial time. We beg, oh God, bring us to worship. Show us your glory. Show us your truths. Convict us of sin. And give us help, God. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Throughout church history in numerous generations, there have been these little movements that pop up once in a while where there is the, the attempt to essentially get rid of the Old Testament. It may not always be worded like that, but it's there. But this goes back even as early as the second century with the, with the heretic Marcion. Even in this last year here in America, a pretty famous Christian pastor uh, made headlines in the the Christian world by saying that it's time for Christianity to unhitch itself from the Old Testament. He he said that he found the Old Testament embarrassing and that it's a reason why many won't turn to Christ. So it's time for us to just stop dealing with it, Just, just pretend it's not there. And let's just talk about the resurrection. Well, it's my hope that even as I say those things, in your mind, there is uh, the look of like, that's absurd, and see it for the rubbish that it is. As we've been studying through the theology and the storyline of the Old Testament, one of the things that we have seen again and again, we will never understand what God has done in Christ, who is the point and center of all of history. We will never understand him, never understand the gospel, if we do not understand the Old Testament. I I believe every single truth in the New Testament is first introduced to us. We're given categories for thinking about it in the Old Testament. Even the meaning of life itself and the point for which this universe was created. The great and glorious God is displaying His glory to call a people to Himself To behold Him, we will love Him and adore Him throughout eternity as a people, as only a people who have been saved from hell can do. The glorious God is displaying His glory by saving a people for Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the point of history. This is what God is doing in the world. And we see those things laid out for us in the Old Testament. And today we finish up our overview study through it. To do that, we're going to look at God's final word to his covenant people in the Old Testament scriptures. Before he would go silent for a long season of time. So what is the last thing God would say to his people? What is the last message that he would preach As part of the Old Testament scriptures before them, there would be silence until the coming of Christ. Well, that last message is the book of Malachi to kind of maybe help you see where it fits in the timeline here. The book of Malachi was written roughly 30 years after Nehemiah's work, which we spent some time talking about last week. We're going to spend time looking at the message of Malachi and then kind of at the very end, We'll talk just a little bit about how what we've seen and then even the book of Malachi sets up the New Testament, the new covenant coming in Christ. As I spent my time with Malachi this week, it amazed me how perfect of a conclusion it is to the Old Testament. I mean, yeah, of course, this is the sovereign God. He's infinitely wise. We would expect it to be the perfect conclusion. But when you read it, it is astounding how it gets to the bottom We've been following all this storyline. We've been seeing all of these problems. The book of Malachi takes us down into the mines to see the bottom of the problems that Israel was having in their covenant relationship with their God. Book of Malachi addresses these. So... Let's spend some time working through it. Now we're going to get to some points. So you note takers who like really have to have some structure in things. We're going to, we're going to get to some of that. We'll have some points, but first we're going to talk a little bit about an overview of just sort of what's in the book and, and the main tone of it. So where we are in the storyline of Israel's history, the two kingdoms of Israel have fallen exile. God's brought them back into the land. Last week we spent time with Ezra and Nehemiah and the restoration of Jerusalem, the building of the temple, the building of the walls and such. And at the end of this, they find themselves once again in their land. Covenant people in a covenant land called to live under God's rule. And if they would, there would be God's blessing. But what the people find themselves in is a situation of rebuilding, but they are nowhere near their former glory. And they are light years from the glory that God has said will be. As you read through the prophets and God describes this kingdom to come, life inches forward in a disappointing kind of fashion. Ezra and Nehemiah led the people to repentance and to spiritual health. But once they passed, you know, similar to the days of Joshua, once his influence passed, the slow fade of drifting from God occurs. The same thing happens after Ezra and Nehemiah. And we are right back where we have been so many other times. Like, like, logically, thinking about all this, we would think, after all that they've seen, Man, finally, finally, there ought to be a, a glorious thriving of spiritual life, of living unto God, being like, we don't want to do what our fathers did. But sin is not logical. The corruption in your heart and my heart, it's not logical. We want stupid things. We want things that don't make sense. And so the book of Malachi is a call to reformation. It's a call to re- reformation and repentance. There was religion among the people and in fact there is an important point to know here. We have had a step forward that's happened. In many of the prophets during and after the exile, one of the things that God kept saying was, I'm bringing about the day when you will no longer call on Baals and Asherahs and Milcoms. You will no longer look to idols. And of course, the ultimate end of that is the the final kingdom to come. But there is a way that there was some partial fulfillment even in an earthly sense that's here. After Israel came back from exile and back into the land, it does appear no more foreign idols. Like that part's done. So that's a, that's a big step forward. No more Baals, no more Asher's, no more Milcom's. They adopted the Lord, Yahweh, as their God. But even that does not guarantee that worship will be genuine. Can I apply that to us real quickly? You need to attach yourself to a church family that teaches truth, that leads in a way of truth, but never think that just because you are attached to a church that is right, that it's a guarantee that your heart is right. The people put off idols and adopted the Lord as their God, but their religion was an empty one. Largely. That's one of the things that the book of Malachi will address, that there is a remnant. It's another one of the Old Testament themes. We didn't get to cover everything. It's another theme you can kind of trace starting in Genesis 4 and working your way even through the New Testament. God always has a remnant. God always brings a people to himself that he delights in and is pleased with. And here God has a remnant, but largely the bulk of the people lived, well, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 when he said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And the book of Malachi addresses this scenario. It addresses this circumstance of a people who call themselves religion, a people who have attached themselves to religion, but their hearts are far from God. So try to imagine this. Let's pretend that you had a friend who was going to church, but this friend, they were going to church, but you thought it was pretty obvious. They're not being authentic. They're not really walking with God. They're just kind of going through the motions and their lives show evidence of false religion in their hearts. And so let's say that you ask your friend to meet for coffee. You sat down and you did a loving thing. Now, for some of you, this may not sound polite, but I am going to tell you this is what the Bible calls us to in a loving and humble kind of way, you sat down with your friend and you said, I wanted to meet with you today because I think, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be real gracious about this, but I I think that you're not really walking with God. I I think that you're just playing a game, going through the motions, and your heart is not wholly devoted to the Lord. I think you're practicing false religion. Now, how's that conversation going to go? Well, sometimes, sometimes the Holy Spirit prepares people for a moment like that. The general human response is that your friend is probably going to get defensive. Probably going to start going like, what do you mean? Well, why do you think I'm practicing false religion? I think you're practicing false religion. Like, why, why, why doing this? Well, well, in the book of Malachi, God has a number of imaginary conversations with the people of Israel where he brings a charge against them about their empty religion and he anticipates their defensive objections. God actually exposes their secret inner thoughts and says, this is what you're really thinking when I say this. And then God addresses it. And he calls them to reformation. Let me give you a couple examples, okay? This is all through the book. But in Malachi 1, in verse 2, do you see the part there where God says to Israel, I have loved you. And what do they say? Yeah, right. Look around. sure doesn't look like God loves us. And then God describes and he tells them, here's some proof that I have loved you. And then look, look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you. O oh, priest who despised my name. All right. He's brought a charge. You're not honoring me. You're not respecting me. And even the priest despise my name. Well, what do they say to that? But you say, how have we despised your name? And then he brings forth evidence. Does that make sense? Kind of what's happening here. God brings charges. He anticipates the, the defensive objection. And then he corrects their thinking. God who knows, knows your thoughts better than you know your thoughts. You know, it is a reality. We have thoughts that go on in our hearts that we don't clearly understand the thought is there. We have some thoughts that go on in our hearts. It's only after we've clarified them that we can kind of look back and be like, yeah, that was going on, but I never really realized I was thinking it. There are some real deep parts of our heart. God knows the very depths of your thoughts Feelings better than you do and God exposes them in verse 13 of chapter 1 do what he sees there here's something else your heart says my how tiresome it all is about worship is that not a thought that we have when we are not in a right place with God oh when is this service going to be over oh I don't feel like going to church today when is this guy going to shut up You may be some godly thoughts there, but throughout the book, God addresses their empty religion and he brings up evidence for them and calls them to reformation. So he brings up things like, here's where the points come in, okay? He brings up things like their half-hearted offerings, their half-hearted service, their half-hearted obedience, their half-hearted giving, their half-hearted worship, and their empty hearts. So six points there. And we're going to spend a little bit of time walking through these six points as we finish out the book of Malachi here. So let's see how God addresses them. Number one, God addresses their half hearted offerings. In chapter one, verse, starting in verse six and all the way down through the end of the chapter there, God addresses the fact that many of the people, they were showing up for worship services, they were going through motions, and it was required when you came to a worship service, you needed to bring an offering. But what were the people bringing? You saw it there. They're sick and lame animals to offer on the altar. And I I love the genius of how God addresses this. God asked them sort of the rhetorical question, you're bringing me a pathetic, sick offering. Should I accept it from you? Do, Do you expect me to bless you in this? I love the question when he asked, would your governor accept that? Ooh, would he be okay with that? In chapter two, God addresses the priest and he calls them out for their half-hearted service. This is the second, second charge that God brings. And if you take the two of those together, their half-hearted offerings and their half-hearted service, here's a point that God makes. The quality of the offering and service that you give to God is a representation of how you value him. Pathetic offerings come from hearts that have pathetic worship. Mediocre service come from hearts that have mediocre love. But those who serve with excellence and those who give of themselves immensely, both in their regular lives of obedience and in their their ministry service and such, those are people who see God differently. And that is why God says in the book, you see him saying there, I am a great king. My name is going to be worshipped in the ends of the earth. In every corner of this planet, there are going to be people who love my name. But you're not treating me like a great king. You are treating me like someone who is worth a sick goat. Thirdly, God addresses their half-hearted obedience. And he spends a good bit of time on this one. He spends a good bit of time talking about life and the family obedience in the family. And he uses this as evidence to say, you don't truly fear me. What do you mean? Let me give you some evidence. In, um, in chapter two, if you kind of just sort of look through there, you might even have a subheading starting at verse 10 that talks about sin in the family. In verses 10 through 12, he addresses who they were marrying he then in throughout the passage, he gets down into um, how they were raising their kids. He gets into the aspect of divorce. Uh, to read one section here to kind of get a, a sense for it, start in verse 13 with me. And look what he says here. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Now he's going to tell them why I don't accept your worship. Why I'm not answering your prayers. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Take this as an overview. What does God want from the family? The family is just one of the one of things. The, 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 uh, Basic institutions that God created at the very beginning when we went through Genesis 2, we saw there's a reason why, as a part of the creation narrative, we see marriage and the family. So what did God desire? What does he want from the family? Well, he talks about it here. One of the things he says is godly offspring. You know, we've made the point in the past that the way that the Bible speaks of the family He speaks of it that families are to be like little churches. The family is to be the place where gospel life is lived out, a culture of gospel living. As a husband and a wife in covenant together, both live obedience to God and and encourage each other to grow in Christ, living in the joy of the covenant, uh, living out those blessings under the blessing of God and then raising the children to know God to love God, to see the joy of this. God speaks of fathers in the same kind of way that pastors are spoken of for churches. Wives are like ministers in this little church. This is the way that God speaks of the family. Your life has a purpose. Your family has the same purpose, to glorify God. So what will glorify him? Well, to live gospel life, encouraging one another to live gospel life. And as a general principle, God gives us parents about 18 years of evangelism and discipleship with our kids. 18 years of influence. How will you spend that time? Well, God addresses those things. God wants the family to be a place where the worship and obedience is flourishing. And here is one of the crucial factors in that. We've seen God bring this up numerous times. Here at the end of the Old Testament, God has a pretty strong word about this one. Just practically think about this, friends. If your life is meant to glorify God, if that's your purpose and God wants the family to have a culture of worship, pause there for a second. You know how some families have a a culture of sports? Like it's, All that goes on. I love, I like sports. Our kids do sports. But there's a way of like, it's the culture of the family. It's all it's about. Some families kind of have a culture of work and money, work and money. It's all the conversations, what everything's about. God wants the Christian family to have a culture of worship, a culture of loving him. If that is the case, then who you marry will be the single greatest earthly factor of that. It'll be the single greatest earthly factor of your life. And that's why scripture is very clear, Old Testament and New Testament, that God says my people are to marry someone who is a part of my people. Followers of Christ are to marry followers of Christ. Now the Bible addresses the circumstance of what happens if a Christian is married to a non-Christian. Bible holds out a great deal of hope Bible says that the Christian who is in that situation is to live so beautifully, to live in such a way that shows Christ to be so wonderful. Some point here, being married to a Christian should be a great thing. Okay. It should be a joy. Okay. Someone who is following after Christ and being conformed to the image and the character of Christ, that should be a joyful thing. Okay. Being a difficult spouse, that's, that's not following after the character of Christ. So Being a Christian should be a joyful thing for your husband or your wife. And scripture says that you should live in such a way, making it a a great mission of your life to try to draw your spouse to trust in Christ. But when you have the choice, God's command is do not marry someone who is not converted and following Christ. So there's a word to singles, you who are not yet married. And also, as we think about it, you know, there's no command in the Bible that forbids the dating of unbelievers. You know, but we do have to be kind of honest about that. There's danger. There's a danger that is there. There's the danger that dating unbelievers will lead to the marrying of an unbeliever. And sometimes God works this out in his kindness. We, we do uh, know um, believers who, who do effectively lead their spouses to Christ, it happens. And it does happen that sometimes the unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend does come to faith in Christ. It doesn't always work out that way though. It's one of the things I always feel the need to, to kind of say and confess is my wife and I talk about this a fair amount with youth and things. And we're on the same page. I've got her permission, so I'm not gonna get slapped after this or anything. Okay? I started dating my wife before she had turned to Christ. I am very thankful for the kindness of God that she turned to Christ early in our relationship. So things worked out really well, but not because like I was being super obedient, but just because of God's kindness. But it doesn't always work out like that. And, and, and I, just, I just want to be real with you as I tell you this. Um, many, many times in pastoral counseling, I sit across from weeping husbands and, and weeping wives in a situation of being unequally yoked. That's, that's one of the ways the Bible talks about it. Because there is a misery that's there. Th- there is a challenge. There is a difficulty. It's not always miserable, but it is always a challenge. Because friends, think about it. The Christian is on a trajectory. And those who refuse Christ are on the opposite trajectory. The Christian is on the trajectory towards obedience and holiness The one refusing Christ is on a trajectory that is going to compound sin over the course of time. And who you marry will matter a great deal in the life that you live and in whether or not your family life will please God. Thank God there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's redemption. Thank God our God is a God who takes broken situations and for the glory of His name, blesses things but to the best of our ability we are to honor him in this and then also still under the same point so God has addressed the raising of children God has addressed who you marry and then he also addresses this he addresses the matter of divorce similar to our culture here divorce was rampant at this time in this day in the Israelite culture and you know just kind of drawing a parallel here to our our culture that has had a strong Christian influence. And sometimes there are wrong ideas that come from that, very similar to the Israelite culture at this time. Kind of the wrong idea that because there's a strong Christian influence that like everybody's Christian, the Israelites kind of had some of the same sort of ideas. You know, the Bible teaches church discipline. And we seek to practice it. We've noted that it has not been faithfully practiced here in our culture in a, in a large way. And it has led to some terrible things. It has led to sin taking root in churches. You know, we Christians rightly oppose corruptions of marriage, like same-sex marriage and such. But you know, this, the world will sometimes bring up the point. You Christians have been tolerating divorce for decades Now, all of a sudden, you want to march in the streets about same-sex marriage. All of a sudden, marriage became sacred to you. You know what? They have a point. There is a point there. The point is not to stop trying to work for the sanctity of marriage. And I'll remind you that faithful churches have been preaching against divorce and have been disciplining unbiblical divorce all along. But in the same way that cultural Christianity in America tolerates a lot of evil that it shouldn't, and it exposes false religion. The same thing was happening in Israel at this time. And did you catch that part there in verse 15? Where God says, No one who has done these things who is filled with my spirit. Oh, they may have attached themselves to my name. But they were not filled with my spirit. They were not among my remnant. And similarly, people may attach themselves to a church because of social reasons, family reasons, or just to feel better about themselves. But the chief issue then is the chief issue of what it is now. It's what it has always been. Are you personally surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you bowed your life down to his reign and his rule? Are you striving for obedience, submission, faith, repentance, It's the same issue now as it was then. This is the heart of what God is getting to. God says of these family matters, the fact that you consistently live in disobedience is showing your hearts are not wholly mine. Your worship is not just what happens here on Sundays. You know, worship has multiple parts. There's the direct worship, which is what we are doing right now. And hopefully what you'll do maybe tomorrow morning before you start your day is you open the Bible and you seek after God. That's direct worship. But what the Bible also shows us is that worship is a lifestyle. Worship is making your Monday through Saturday an offering unto God. It's making your life an offering unto God. And that includes our obedience. It includes every dimension of our life. Listen, friends, when we submit to Jesus Christ, we are submitting all of ourselves And speaking of submitting all of ourselves, here's number four. God addresses their half-hearted giving. Jump to chapter three. Jump to chapter three and start in verse seven there with me. Three, seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Just as God speaks demands over every part of our lives. Do you ever think about how extensive his reign and his sovereignty is? God extends his sovereign rule over who you will marry over your sexuality, over your decisions, over your thoughts, your thoughts. Jesus is sovereign and rules and gives demands concerning our thoughts and our giving and our resources. He has demands concerning what we do with these finances that he entrusts to us. This passage right here is probably the clearest, most convicting passage section on the Bible on this topic. Jesus in the New Testament would go on to say uh, much more about giving, about going farther than the tithe. But this is probably the clearest passage on this. And so just as the people were not honoring God in these other areas of life, they were giving half-hearted devotion in these other areas. The same thing was happening in their giving. The instructions that God had given about bringing the 10th of their income, they were not obeying. You're bringing some of it. Did you see that part there in verse 10 where he says, bring the whole tithe? They were bringing something and telling themselves, justifying themselves. Oh, you know, I'm giving. God says, but you're holding back. You're not bringing the whole tithe. The way that God explains the whole concept of giving, we don't have time for a whole theology, but here's a quick version. God explains the concept of the tithe, the tenth, as the baseline. From there, as your giving increases, it becomes free will offerings. And the New Testament has a lot to say about giving. Um, gives us all kinds of principles about giving with a cheerful heart, giving out of worship, giving out of love, giving out of joy. Uh, The New Testament tells us things like as our uh, resources increase, so our giving should increase, things like this. But God speaks of the tithe as the bare minimum that we, and I use this word carefully, owe God, owe Him. He says when there's a falling below this, what does He call it? Now, now, look, I, I know we're a little tentative here. There's so much schmoozing when it goes on to teaching about giving and such. I've just kind of made it a principle here. We're not going to like do series on giving um, when it comes time to talk about the building and such. We're not going to have like some big whole manipulative scheme about how to try to weasel money out of everybody. But the Bible does say things and the Bible does show some things. And he says that when the giving falls below this, what does he call it? He says, you're robbing me. This is, this is the standard. This is the baseline. This is where you begin. And to do less than this is to rob God. Now, Jesus will go on in the New Testament to teach things like this. The wisest thing you or I could ever do with our resources is to sell everything, give to the poor, and then you have treasure in heaven. So if you ask Jesus, what is the greatest thing I could do with my resources? That's it. He encourages that, but he doesn't demand that from everyone. Now he does demand that we view our money as God's. That's one of the things Jesus says in turning our back on our possessions. Do you realize what it showed when Jesus told the rich young ruler that he needed to, Give everything away. Jesus is expressing his sovereignty over every penny that is currently in your temporary possession. Jesus has sovereignty over all of it. He has rule over every part of our lives and our resources. And so God speaks of the tithe like this, that this is what is required. And so maybe to give an illustration of a way that might help us bring it home a little, a little closer, would you be okay if your boss at work gave you most of your paycheck, but just kept back some of it. Well, God was angry with the people because largely they were bringing most of their tithe, but keeping some back here. And the greater point here, friends, is is this. He uses this as evidence to once again show, your hearts are not wholly surrendered to me. Friends, in the same way that our service The quality of service that we give to God is a reflection of our submission and our honoring of Him. Our giving is an insight into our worship. Our giving is an insight into our hearts. Now, Jesus would warn, big giving doesn't guarantee right hearts. A hypocrite can give big in order to feel right about himself. But God is showing here that small giving is reflecting something, is exposing something. One last little story. Richard Wurmbrand, um, the guy that wrote the book Tortured for Christ, we've got one more copy back there on the table for free if somebody wants to take that. The guy who wrote that book uh, tells the story of Christians who were in concentration camps in Russia. They lived on rotten cabbage, moldy bread, and the spoiled food that the soldiers would no longer eat and tossed into their cells. R- Richard Wormbrand said that the Christians would take a tenth of their best bread, and give that to the sickliest among them. I don't know about you, but I read things like that, and that convicts me about that kind of level of devotion, that kind of level of, I will obey even unto death. Well, number five, God addresses their half-hearted worship. Their half-hearted worship. It's a general principle of worship, what God says there in Malachi 3, verse 7, if you saw him say there, return to me, And I will return to you. Other places in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There are different ways that we worship. And we just mentioned that worship is both something that happens in a direct kind of way like here, but also in a lifestyle But when it comes to the direct time, a general principle of worship is we seek God. We are searching for God. We want His truth. We want to know Him. We want to see His glory. We want to be close to Him. But empty religion feigns drawing near to God. It pretends it. But the reality is the heart is empty. The heart is devoid of a true desire for God. The Israelites were engaging in religion, but with hearts that did not desire and yearn for God. Empty religion does not long for him. It simply goes through the actions. And at the end of Old Testament history here, he is calling out the emptiness of their worship. Oh, they're going through motions. And and did you see now, there's a step forward here, it seems... They're adhering to more of the specific commands. But did you see that part there in chapter one when God says, I'd love it if somebody closed the gates. Stop burning the fire on the altars because your worship is not pleasing to me. If our hearts are not right, God is not pleased with the actions. We are to engage the heart. And then lastly, number six, God addresses their empty hearts. In chapter three, verses 13 and 14, he gets into some of this. Verse 14, you have said it's vain to serve God. That's some of their deepest thoughts. Maybe they've never even vocalized those thoughts. Maybe they've never even said it out loud, but they've said it deep down It's vain to worship God. What profit is it that we've kept his charge? Do you see how they kind of see themselves as a victim? Here I've served God. What do I got to show for it? And what does God address? You haven't served me. You've pretended to serve me. Oh, you've showed up at the temple, but you have never one day in your life totally surrendered to me. You have hearts that think big thoughts about earthly things, but you think small thoughts about me. He says, You've done some religion, but you have not feared me as the great king. I do not accept your pathetic worship from your empty hearts. I am a great king, and my name will be revered to the ends of the earth. But Israel saw him as small, as small. At the end of the Old Testament, what kind of spiritual condition are the people in? They didn't care. There was spiritual apathy. There was numbness of heart. Investing in the things of the earth and disregarding the things of God. They did not see him as a great king. They saw him as someone so insignificant. I got to bring an offering. Son, go, go grab the limping goat. That'll be fine. They saw him so low. And their lives... Revealed it. The book of Malachi ends the Old Testament on a bit of a depressing note. There's hope that's given, but there's also a warning of judgment. To finish out this section, look at the first part of chapter 3, and then we're going to read chapter 4 together as well. Look at the first part of chapter 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That messenger, by the way, would be John the Baptist a fuller soap is meant to cleanse. Verse three, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. I believe that's a reference to us Christians in the new covenant as priests unto God and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. God is saying the day's coming when I send my one, he will purify, he will cleanse and I will get righteous offerings as I'm worthy of. I will get worship that I am worthy of. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Jump to chapter four, verse one, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Friends, at that moment, the prophets went silent. A lot of significant things happened in the next season. This next season of after the close of the Old Testament scriptures and before the New Testament, We call it sometimes the intertestamental period. Persia would be conquered by Alexander the Great in 333 B.C., so about 103 years after this moment. Then Rome would gain rule in 63 B.C. under Pompey. But the most significant thing is what didn't happen. For 400 years, no prophet spoke. Think about the significance of that. Since the days of Moses, more than a thousand years before the end of Malachi, there has been prophet after prophet. There have been hundreds of them. God kept sending prophets to announce the coming restoration, calling the people to repent, and speaking of the one who was to come. But at this moment, the radio waves from heaven, nothing. Silence. But then... After 400 long years, that silence would be broken by an angel appearing in the temple, and then another angel appearing to a virgin. And then there would be the cries of a baby boy who would ring out I'm not yet talking about Jesus. Before Jesus, John the Baptist would come. When it says, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, Jesus says, That's John. At the very end of Malachi where it says, I'm sending Elijah the prophet, Jesus says, this is John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the kind of ministry as Elijah to prepare the way. Even when Jesus was in in the womb, everywhere that Jesus went, there was sort of like all of a sudden inspired prophets. Do you remember that part where Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who who is the the mother of John the Baptist? She visits Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaps in the womb, leaps in the belly by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth perceives why this is happening. At that moment, Mary is inspired as a prophet and in Luke 1 gives a prophecy. And then on the day of John the Baptist's birth, Zacharias, which is his father, he had been mute. Because he had questioned the angel. Don't ever do that. It's not a good idea. It doesn't work out well. Questioned the angel of how will I know that my son will be a prophet. Angel's like, I got an idea. You won't be able to speak till the day he's born. On the day John the Baptist is born, his tongue is loosed and he delivers this prophecy. Jesus is born and on that night, the angels appear to shepherds out in the field telling them to go and announce Jesus is brought to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. And you've got these people who spontaneously get filled with the Holy Spirit inspired to prophesy. Friends, think about this. For four centuries, there has been no prophet, nothing but silence. Now, everywhere Jesus is, prophet, prophet, prophet. They're all speaking up. Angels are appearing. This is a new age. Something is happening here. Something that is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has been heralding. And they're all saying the same thing, he's here. Remember the wise men or the magi who come to visit Jesus in Bethlehem? Guess where those magi came from? Many scholars are convinced, I'm absolutely convinced. I don't think there's any question about it. These magi were descended from the spiritual wise men we talked about in the book of Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar. In the Greek Old Testament, they are called magi. Then we come to the New Testament. They are called Magi. So in some ways that we don't have full answers on and we take some guesses and things, these Magi understood that the king had come. How would they know about a prophecy concerning a Messiah? Did they ever have a prophet among them? You betcha they did. A guy named Daniel, who was so revered he was spoken of for centuries after him. And then somehow God revealed to these Magi that this king has come and they make this journey. So after all of these prophecies, after all these angels appearing, here are these strange Gentiles who show up and announce the coming of the one. And as John began his ministry, what did he preach? Well, a lot of things. But his ministry can be summed up how Jesus does in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled that's a big weighty statement the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel i'm going to suggest you don't understand that unless you understand the old testament another way of saying that the kingdom that god promised the kingdom that we ruined the kingdom that god promised to redeem The kingdom we could not get right in the past, but God kept promising one day it is coming in perfection. It's here. It's now. And it's in Christ. Jesus, who is the son of David, has come to take his rightful seat on the throne over Israel. But all the prophets declared this as well. This king who would rule over Israel, all the nations will come to him. Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and the coming Messiah will hold the governments of the world on his shoulders. This king will rule the earth. In Daniel, we talked about that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, that dream of the statue. There's one more part we didn't talk about. God also revealed this little section about a stone that began in the Roman days, the days of the iron and the clay, the stone that would one day grow into a mountain that encompassed the entirety of the earth and the kingdom of God prevailed over all of the earth. This Messiah would come, sit on the throne and rule over the cosmos. You may enter this kingdom, but you do not enter this kingdom by merely attaching yourself to some religion, attaching yourself to a church, this kingdom that King Jesus is reigning over, you enter by faith and repentance. You enter by seeing him and believing that he is the one the prophets foretold. He is who he says he is. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is the only hope that you have of eternal life. And whenever you take your trust out of whatever you have it in earthly speaking, taking trust out of yourself, stop trusting in your ability to be right with God. Stop trusting in your money to satisfy you. Stop trusting in your church attendance to make you right with God. And you place your trust completely resting in Jesus Christ and call out to him. The Bible says you will be saved and you will enter this kingdom. You don't get to see it and drink fully of it yet, but you are as part of it as anyone in history has been. This kingdom of God that will one day reign over the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is the one it is all about. All of the Old Testament and all of the prophets have been pointing to Him and it is all fulfilled in Him. Look to Christ And you will have eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, what can we say after seeing what we've seen? Hallowed be your name. Your name be glorified to the ends of the earth. We as a people exalt you and worship you now. And it is our cry and plea, oh God, that you will magnify your name to the ends of the earth. Make your gospel to be known. Raise up laborers to go with the message of Christ. And even from here, oh God, we pray, send out workers into the harvest fields. We love you, God. Ask for your blessing as we leave and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Half-Hearted Worship. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.